This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel and Brady Turner, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. and welcome to The Forge, your Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games' Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hilly, and it's been a while, um, but we have an episode tonight that is going to put the pedal to the metal and crank up the NOS and shift into top gear so we can go super, super fast and stuff. Yeah, I really still don't know anything about cars. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I really don't. But I do know about exciting vehicle maneuvers in Genesis, and we'll be uh, taking a few hairpin turns around that topic as we continue our multi-show discussion on vehicles in the Genesis role-playing game in The Furnace. Uh, we'll also be introducing a brand new show segment tonight where we welcome a special guest for his first time, and hopefully it'll be far from his last appearance to walk us all through his momental task of converting one of the most popular and fan love RPG settings in the past 20 years into Genesis. And of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to the fellow so mellow that the police tried to arrest him for street racing, then took one look and ticketed him for driving too slowly instead. It's GM Chris. How you doing, man? <coughs> oh man, um, I, I got. I'm, I'm a little. I'm a little sick. It's not the COVIDs, but uh, but uh, I'm a little a little under the weather. But I'm okay. Yeah. Um, been looking forward to this show though. Mm. I've had a few of those uh, little uh, sniffles as well. A couple of times since we've last spoken, uh, recorded <laughs> on the show. Yeah, I've and I've been tested for COVID twice. And I definitely don't have COVID. So, well, you can like get tested easily where you live. You know, yeah, you can, like, we we like just do a drive through. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. great. <laughs> yeah, here, 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 our government seems to be hoarding the tests, which is right. just fantastic. Mm, we're not going to get political, are we? <laughs> well, this isn't political. This is just the news, um, or it's fake news, I guess, depending on who you're talking about. But you know what we are talking about? What are we talking about, Chris? Genesis. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> strangely enough <laughs> um, strangely enough and this show and actually I, i'm kind of excited we we have you know we we we've got to talk about an exciting announcement kind of before we get into things guys mm-hmm. regarding this show and and kind of our ongoing format mm-hmm. because starting with tonight's episode we are making a summer changes mm-hmm. right we are uh when chris and i first brainstormed the the po- this podcast last summer uh, we had a rough idea of, of the segments that we wanted to have in the show, uh, how long they were going to be, and and um, how the show would basically flow. 
But now, some ten months later, we've um, you know we've we've produced these, we've listened, uh, and we've learned, and we've noticed that the segment, which um, you know we love producing uh, as we do, and we don't really want to change them, but we we understand that everything that we're doing has evolved into larger and larger efforts. Not only does this have an impact of uh, creating incredibly long shows that, while some of you do enjoy them they are truly difficult to plow through in one or two sittings and to be perfectly frank are also a nightmare to edit <laughs> and to write <laughs> right, <laughs> right? <laughs> no kidding no kidding um so you know guys to to that end Gamer Nation, we, we are officially shortening the format of our regular episodes. Mm. We are still going to do all of the segments you love, mm. just not all five segments within <laughs> each episode. <laughs> Chris, I just think I heard hundreds of fans sighing out in relief. <laughs> I think something amazing has just happened. Um, right. <laughs> so listen guys basically each show we we plan to do the following um uh you know for until we decide to change it again i guess um <laughs> we 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 plan to uh continue to provide announcements um mm-hmm. and new product featurettes in stoking the fire mm-hmm. um and also answer listener questions in under the hammer every mm-hmm. single episode mm-hmm. but in addition to that rather than do three additional segments we're going to alternate the meat of our show between die casting which is obviously our talent and skill focused talks Mm-hmm. And the furnace, which is our, our mechanical deep dive segment. Um, we are also going to be alternating breaking the mold, our foundry author interview segment, with a brand new segment, Huli teased a moment ago, that will air for the first time on this very episode tonight. And it's something we've been planning for quite some time. And I cannot wait for this. Uh, but yes, our goal is basically to keep these shows at around about two hours or less uh, instead of, you know, four hours. <laughs> <laughs> as we have done in the past. Uh, so uh, it also means that we can do more regular episodes as well because, uh, you know, four hours, it literally does take 20 hours to edit uh, because of the, the you know, a lot of people do compliment us on how the episodes sound and how they've been edited. So, you know, to, to keep that the the way that we've always done things, to, to keep that in focus, uh, so that people don't have to listen to what sounds like people talking around a table in the one microphone. Uh, yeah. That uh, that I really like to take the time and effort to do that. So uh, so yeah, but you can really expect a bit more variety and uh, slightly shorter shows from now on. Uh, additionally, this will give us more time to spend with our patreons who help contribute to the show, uh, because I know that they've uh, they've been sort of asking for a little bit more of our attention as well, which is great. Uh, and we really want to give back to them because they they are really supporting us. So, uh, so yeah, and keeping us alive, which That's... is more <laughs> incredible. Yeah, um, but this is awesome sauce. Hmm. Um, so, Uli, in the interest of that two hour mark, God yep. only knows if we'll get there this episode, but we're going to try. <laughs> yep. Um, and we got a task ahead of us because boy, do we have a lot to get into hmm. in the foundry. You know, in terms of what's new. Oh yes. There's a lot new. We're not even going to be able to get into it all this episode, I think. No. Um, and, you know, so should we should we move into some, some news? Uh, absolutely, I think we should. So let's get into it in Stoking the Fire. Stoking the Fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, 
Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio podcast of the week? I certainly can. Our podcast of the week is, fittingly, as we'll see in a bit, mm-hmm. Eberron Renewed. In in their most recent episode, number 167, entitled Thinking Inside the Box, Chapter 1, <laughs> Start of a Brand New Arc, yep. the, the party is hired by a shady contact uh, to transport a box from one side of the city to the other, under two mm. conditions. <laughs> don't look in the box, and don't get caught. But when they witness a murder in the streets and must run from the city watch, only one question is on everyone's mind. What's in the box? Um, <laughs> like any typical PC party. <laughs> I know. This is a classic RPG campaign um, problem mm. uh, that has been done so well. And I love how I, I love how this is being tackled. And I can't wait to see how it's happening. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for, for some actual play Genesis, it doesn't get much better than this. So go mm. check it out. And you can find it and more amazing gaming and geekery podcasts right now at d20radio.com. It's so good that they've embraced the love of Genesis. And for those who've never played before and want to know more, it is really a great way to learn the system as several of the players are pretty new to Genesis. Uh, If not, this is their first foray into that. Uh, So as Chris said, go and check them out, especially if you've only just caught the Genesis bug. Can I even use that turn of phrase in the current environment? Uh, So talking about the foundry, (laughs) uh, as I leave that room. there have been uh, uh, quite a, a few new releases, quite a few, um, mm. since our last episode, especially from Chris the Machine, Markham, uh, mm. which we'll get into in a minute. Uh, but since our ep- uh, last episode, we've had 12 new releases. Yeah. Um, and I don't even think we're going to have time to get into all of them, guys, but mm. we are going to do, do a fair chunk. Yeah. Uh, and th- the rest we'll get to on our next show. Mm. Um, firstly, though, uh, uh, the, the best news of all is that Keyforge is out mm-hmm. um, and is available in PDF form right now. From Drive Through RPG, mm. um, but not only that. Um, as we we promoted on social media, the the the, the minute it happened, uh, <laughs> FFG has also updated the terms and conditions of the Foundry uh, agreement uh, to include Keyforge. Yep. That means that authors on the Foundry can now contribute uh, products to the Foundry that include the Keyforge setting, which is awesome. And we have one author that's already taken advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, who was the first to do that? Uh, Chris Markham? <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of Chris Markham, um, the first of his slew of products is the first product off the shelf, uh, so mm. to speak with, uh, for review. And that is uh, recently released Trades of Tyranoth. Um, it, it realms a Tyranoth source book, um, as much of the work he does is, mm. um, offers eight uh, career options for players. Um, but this supplement also provides us uh, with the conversion of Descent board games, 32 careers mm-hmm. into Genesis, mm-hmm. um, along with some intriguing options for special abilities um, and, and ways to kind of spice up career options in general. Um, mm-hmm. Some of those careers uh, um, include careers with familiars as their focus, which mm-hmm. has a soft spot in my heart. Um, <laughs> uh, two new creatures in it as well, the Stone Sentry and the Soul Shadow. And finally, you get a pack of ready-to-print adversary cards uh, for the familiars uh, included with this product, which mm. I think is fantastic. Um, I I really do like this product. I, and I especially like that someone else feels that careers need something more than a skill set. Yep. Um, the special abilities for each career 
make it worthwhile and offer another way to make characters feel unique. Yep. Uh, that alone was worth the price of admission for me. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple layout issues. Um, I think it needs some working on, but it's still totally readable and useful for anyone wanting to use it in their realms of Terranoth campaign. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, pretty much any fantasy campaign. And it's <laughs> super cheap. Um, uh, you know, uh, $2 right now, um, or as a part of the, of the, uh, the copper club bundle. Very, very cool. I do like that. Uh, the next one is Traps for Genesis, and that's by Kyle Carty. Uh, the blurb simply says, this document contains quick and easy rules for implementing effective and balanced traps for your Genesis adventures. And it's uh, very cheap uh, for only $2.50. I haven't had the chance to read this one yet, um, so no. I'm kind of intrigued to dive into it. Hmm. And what's the next one? Golems, uh, G-O-L-E-M-S, Genesis Organizations, Legions, and Enterprises Management System. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from uh, one of our own Patreons himself, Fat Crab, uh, Micah Shalom Kesselman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Golems, <coughs> the Genesis Organizations, Legions, and Enterprises Management System, uh, enables game masters to simulate the goings-on of factions behind the scenes of their campaigns. Uh, if you've ever had trouble figuring out what kind of intrigue those background mega corporations are getting up to while your PCs run around pulling gigs for them, how your royal houses scheme and plot against each other, or the ebb and flow of the gangs roving in your post-apocalyptic streets, then golems may be exactly what you need. Mm-hmm. There's the blurb. Um, I know Fat Crab is one of our Patreons, um, and he put a lot of work into this one. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, just it left me wanting for a much less complicated system, but mm-hmm. that's me. Yeah. <laughs> um that that that's me i'm d- appearances to the contrary i'm not a very crunchy gm or a very crunchy <laughs> um if there's complicated or detailed rules involved that's a bit of a turnoff for me but having said that i know a lot of players that dig hard the crunchiest crunch that is ever crunched they want to break <laughs> their teeth on a game system right? right right and if you're into that you will be into this <laughs> <laughs> um you know uh, but you know, uh, I, I'd love to see some some a little more narrative reach to it. In fact, I know Huli. I think you've even reached out to Fat Crab to be work on something. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, a little while ago, um, I think if anybody wants to go hunting through the FFG forums for Star Wars, uh, they'll be able to find one that I did for organizations, which sort of followed a similar approach, but I think that it was a little bit less complicated. Uh, but um, when I pointed in uh, towards that, uh, because I, I was considering, you know, bringing that over to Genesis as well, um, we're going to work on something together which is going to allow people to use what I've done and put it into um, Golems as well. So, um, oh, so that's yeah, awesome. that's, that's really cool. That's, so. that, that's awesome. Well, guys, but it, it is worth checking out to see if you're going to get some kick out of it. Mm. And honestly, it, it has a recommended price of two two fifty, but it's mm-hmm. pay what you want. Yeah. It's a pay what you want item. So, you know, and, and keep in mind with pay what you want, you can you can buy it, guys, for you know a penny or or zero pennies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, keep in mind you can always go back and add money to it. So it's like, wow, this is amazing. I got a lot of use out of it. I really want to pay this guy for his work. You can always do that. Yeah. So you know that's what's great about pay what you want through drive through. So mm-hmm. yeah, seriously, ch- check it out. Check it out. It is good. It is good. Um, so for our next one, we've got Tariano's Transports, which is again by uh, Chris the Machine Markham. Uh, and the blurb for this says, The fabled floating city of Taranor uh, is known all over Minara as the greatest shipyard in the world. Join Captain Eddie Bloodkelp as she guides you through the fine vessels the city builds for both Lorimore 
and the Elbisian Royal Navy. I love the way that when he does these products, I love the way that he has another NPC that sort of takes you through. Yeah. Them. I think that's really, really good, and it gives a little bit it's, more flavor good. to it. It's good. Mm. I know, I know, Zumwalt's done that for his yep. for some of his supplements as well, and I really yep. like that approach. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this supplement provides eight different commonly encountered ships on the waterways of Manara, each with full color deck plans and an image of how the ship appears on the water, gun placements, and of course, Genesis stats. In addition, a rare airship is also detailed in a similar manner, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, and it also has vehicle sheets for each, which is great. Uh, in addition, the various ships' uh, weapons available are also detailed, along with uh, ship modifications and attachments. And finally, life at sea is described in full, along with the challenges, diversions, including the rules for Fortuna's Favor, which is a dice game, and three-card ante, which is another card game, and some of the dangers of the high sea. This is a great product. I've been wanting to do high seas adventures for I don't know how long. Uh, so uh, I've uh, grabbed a hold of this book. It's wonderful and it's only $3. So uh, go, and, go and get that. It's great. Yar. Yar. It be green. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now we switch to a different Chris, and in fact, the fabulous Christopher Ruthenbeck, mm -hmm. um, who ends up with By Sword and Spell, mm -hmm. um, which is your Genesis toolkit for making your own fantasy setting, he says. Mm -hmm. It has everything you need to make your own setting, including six new species, eight new talents, generic crafting rules, three new magic implements, rules for making your own magic implements, guidance on making your own setting using just the cool rulebook and the EPG, three new adversaries, and guidelines for making your own fantasy adversaries using the EPG. What I love most about this is that it is presented in a device-friendly uh, A5 format. Mm -hmm. um, and for you non-Americans, Google it. Um, <laughs> uh, or excuse me, for you Americans, Google it. For Thank you. you. Uh, <laughs> A5 format for the, for the world outside of the US. Okay. Um, but the bottom line is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a properly sized format for a mobile device. It means you won't need to pinch, zoom, or scroll while you're reading on your phone or your tablet. Mm -hmm. um, most importantly, I, I love that Christopher actually reached out to us to let us know that as of version 1.2, this product actually now includes a Creative Commons license uh, so that Foundry authors have explicit permission to use the material contained therein for their own works, mm -hmm. um, which is very nice to see in a Foundry product. Absolutely. Available right now, $4.99. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, the next one on the slate is Genesis Character Booklet, and it's by uh, one of our patrons, uh, RPG Narco, or also known as uh, Roy Altman. Uh, the, uh, the blurb says, presenting the Genesis Character Booklet, this folio-style character sheet is intended for long-term campaigns with lots and lots of space for recording information. In addition, Several important rules references, including healing, status effects, encumbrance, etc., are placed in strategic locations, which will surely speed up the game of any player, new or veteran. And realistically, everything that it says there, that's what you get. And it's really, really well done. He's uh, He's got the formatting down pat. There's only one small issue, but that's that's me just nitpicking, so I'm not going to really mention it. See if you can find it, though. Um, oh, but, you're, you're, are, you, are you OCD, bud? Are you talking about the decrease in the talents? Yeah, pretty much. Um, oh, <laughs> but see, I'm OCD. 
<laughs> See, I'm OCD. Great, Roy. You did. You done good, Roy. <laughs> and and at pay what you want. You did real good. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But tell you what, with the work that he's put into it, uh, he's got a recommended price of three dollars, and I think that it's worth it. Uh, he's uh, it's uh, it's absolutely fantastic, and it fits in that nice sort of. It's basically the equivalent uh, for us Australians. It is going to be the if you're printing it on A4 and you fold it in half, it gives you that A5 format, which is great for just popping in your uh, uh, in your tablet case or uh, whatever it is that uh, you take to your gaming sessions. And uh, yeah, really, really handy. And you can print up a new one every so often because it is form fillable as well. Um, next up, we have another one from the machine, Chris Markham, uh, Timoran's Tome. Mm-hmm. Um, this massive tome, as he describes it, um, is a lost spell book of none other than Timoran himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, it features over 330 new spell customizations for the Terranoth setting. Mm-hmm. Um, this includes spells for familiar magic skills, uh, but also runes and verse magic skills, which are mm-hmm. unique to Terranoth. Um, as well as uh, new customizations for the psychic magic skill introduced in Scott Zumwalt, uh, by Scott Zumwalt in, in uh, Zinthrix. Uh, Z- oh, I can never say it. Neither could I. <laughs> Zinthrix's Guide to Magic. Hmm. Um, a new spell action, Enchant, is also introduced. Um, so a brand new spell, um, along with spells under each of the magic actions and skills mentioned in the core rulebook, the expanded player's guide, Realms of Terranoth, and the aforementioned tome by Scott. Hmm. Um, any spells are adapted to Genesis from Descent expansions, such as Lost Legends, Shadows of Nericol, Chains That Rust, the Troll Fens, and more. Mm. Uh, there's, there's just so much to even go into here. Um, <laughs> it's huge. Uh, a, a magic skills group listing, a, a spell index with page numbers for references, various natural animal listings for the Transform spell for you druids out there, mm-hmm. um, optional new mechanics, and just a, just a ton more. This is a great product with, as always, as we expect from a Terranoth product from Markham, a metric crap ton of research <laughs> behind it. Yep. Th- this is an extremely useful product, and I will point this out specifically. I wanted to call this out. This is an extremely useful product for any GM running Terranoth in Genesis for a bunch of D&D players who need spells to adapt their gaming experience to Genesis. Okay. Mm. Um, tremendous use there. And it's a huge tome with a very decent price for the sheer amount of content it offers. Yep. Um, it's also a part of the Copper Club, but on its own, it is $6.99. Yep. Absolutely fantastic product. Um, our next one, which I was very, very excited to see, is Martian Mayhem, also by Chris Markham. Um, it says, Martian Mayhem is an exciting collection of equipment, vehicles, and creatures used by the Martians on the Crucible all derived from the Keyforge card game and brought to life for Genesis. Join Flix and Bilp. Is that how it's pronounced, I wonder? Bilp? <laughs> I, think it, I, think it's, I think it's Felix and Bleepip. Bleepip. Bleepip? Bleepip. <laughs> let, us, let us know, Chris. We want to know. Um, as they describe uh, personal equipment like the Biomatrix Backup and Brain Stem Antenna to weapons such as the Red Planet Disintegrator... <laughs> I love the names of these things. Uh, or devices like the Deep Probe or Jammer Pack. You'll find plenty of fun additions for your Martian character uh, as well as, um, you know, uh, adversaries. So uh, it's fantastic. Uh, it also has new ship weapons um, for the Flying Saucer and a variant Walker. The I'm not going to even try to pronounce that. <laughs> Lixix. Yixix. 
It's the Yixilks Dominator. <laughs> uh, and it's described in detail as well as four creatures used by the Martians that they brought into Genesis from the card game as adversaries. And of course, all are beautifully illustrated and given the full Genesis stats for use in your Keyforge campaign. This was great to see, as I mentioned before, uh, to see this on the Foundry as, uh, and I'm really glad that it was Chris who made it possible. Uh, this is the first Keyforge uh, supplement to uh, to make it onto the Foundry. Definitely go and check it out. It is only $3 and it's uh, it's masterful. Well done. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, next up is uh, boost number two, Modern Magic, uh, from Community Project, mm. uh, which we remember the last time they released, uh, boost, boost number one. Yep. Um, the, the, the Book of Online Sourced Triumphs is a, a Genesis Community Project with the goal of creating content that relates to a specific theme. And mm. the theme for this issue um, is Modern Magic. Mm. Um, inside, you'll find one new archetype uh, species, uh, six new talents, one new weapon. Um, including two new weapon uh, item qualities, mm-hmm. five new pieces of gear, and five new adversaries. So this is this is the second of the community uh, projects offerings. Yep. Um, and I was quite pleased with it. Mm-hmm. You know, for 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 being this community project offering. Um, the only one complaint I had, I think, is worth mentioning, is is one of the minions in the book, uh, the minor poltergeist, has this massive stat block. It's like mm-hmm. a full column, which is just really unusual for a minion. Yep. Um, you know, rival, maybe nemesis, definitely minion, typically no, no, you know, and, you know, and then, and then, you know, maybe just, you know, but, but honestly, I'm nitpicking it's free. I'm, so I'm not going to complain. Um, I'm not going to complain. Uh, but yeah, it's fun to see the community project continue to do, uh, this kind of work. And I'm really intrigued to see what else they can put out. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I did notice that. And that is one thing that sort of, I think that some people just try to get too much flavor into minions, and that's not the purpose of minions. If uh, mm-hmm. if they want to be, uh, if they want to make minions really, really nasty, uh, I go back to my example of ninjas. If you want ninjas, grab a thug and give them uh, just yeah, brawl or melee, uh, and give them the adversary skill. Uh, it uh, it doesn't need much changing beyond that. Uh, the minions are supposed to last not very long. So again, to avoid that whole D&D mentality, you really have to, rather than going, I've got this massive stat block that I've got to learn to use, and it's only going to last five minutes, I'd much prefer to have that time that I'm going to be spending researching and, and learning what it is that these particular monsters do, I'd much prefer to throw that into the time that I'm going to be spending weaving the story uh, and getting that in my head uh, of the background of the world or whatever else, rather than uh, having to learn rules. And that's the reason why I love Genesis in the first place. So, mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, I agree with you. But, um, but yeah. The next one is Secrets of the Crucible Genesis Character Sheet. Um, and it's form fillable uh, with uh, additional dice pools added. And it's oh. uh, by Scott Zumwalt himself. Uh, the blurb for it is quite simple. The Genesis character sheet for the Keyforge setting, Secrets of the Crucible, form fillable with dice pool calculations, and it's awesome. That's it. <laughs> As uh, And realistically, it's it's top-notch because it comes from Scott. He knows what he's doing. He's good, good value in that regard. Um, oh, yeah. And I really can't say anything more. So uh, get it if you haven't. It's totally free uh, and worth your while, definitely. 
as usual, Scott providing phenomenal free resources to the community, yeah. um, which is greatly appreciated. And Absolutely. Thankfully, they're worth a crap. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they're actually very good. Okay, we have spent so much time about this. We are finally to our last release that we're going to talk about. Yep. Um, and this is from Randall Mason, Vile Villains 2. Mm. Uh, so while the first Vile Villains supplement introduced eight evil nasties, uh, there's a lot more evil in Minara. Uh, this, in this new collection of Terranoth villains, eight new different villains are detailed. Each villain is described, illustrated, and given other information um, to assist GMs in including them in their campaigns. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so honestly, you know, and we... I, I, I think this title needs a little bit of work. Um, I know Chris Markham actually had a lot to do with this product, but, but Mm -hmm. um, I I think, I think it needs some polish in terms of writing style and ideation. Um, Basically, I mean, and just, you know, having several peer reviewers is very important. And I think several of the products that we've been seeing pop up here and there may just need a little more playtesting and quite frankly, just a good proofreader for Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's so important, you know, find two to three people who are not related to you to look through your work uh, people you trust that can tell you if your work needs work. <laughs> I do it. I yep. know GM Hooley does it. Yep. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I don't know. I don't know any freelancers that I know in, in my gaming career, and certainly none that have worked for FFG prior to the demise of the RPG department who don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, it's just a thing. I mean, anyway, th- this product's price is small. Um, it's only three bucks. But but I would really like to see some updates to it and, and yep. see where it can go. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think that there's a lot in there for uh, just from what we've said. I think to some of the other people who are wanting to get involved in the foundry or already have product in the foundry. Um, you know, uh, nobody's expecting. I don't think anybody to be a masterful writer with no errors at, at all, um, because you know even FFG have been known to make mistakes in the past. Uh, and no doubt, in the future, Edge will do the same thing. It, it basically needs a little bit more product and a little bit more proofreading in that regard. So you can find these and many more fantastic Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. And while you're surfing the web, why not jump over and become a supporter of The Forge by joining our Patreon? For as little as $2 a month, you can access our dedicated Discord server where you can interact with other fellow Genesmiths, uh, <laughs> while higher tiers provide priority for your game and rules questions, special in-show recognitions, and even a special monthly get-together with either Huli or myself to discuss your Foundry product, your campaign, your games, or anything else your sick, twisted, dark, lovely little heart desires. <laughs> You've got to draw the line somewhere, though, but I don't know where that line is. <laughs> but, anyway. I don't. <laughs> but no matter what, anything you can uh, spare to show your support is appreciated, and each of your donations help the podcast directly so we can continue providing you with excellent regular Genesis content. That's right, Gamer Nation. Join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at patreon.com slash forgegenesis today. Mm-hmm. Okay, Uli, you ready to once again punch it and rock it off into hyperspeed? Except um, I think you'll find Punch-It is a Star Wars RPG pilot only maneuver, and it's, I'll just shut up now. Um, <laughs> but it is seriously. I am ready, Chris, and it's time to get into The Furnace. The Furnace. And welcome to The Furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis role-playing game. Now, back in episode 15, we took a very long look, and boy, was it long, 
at the rules for vehicles in the Genesis role-playing game and really got to look under the hood. Then mm-hmm. in episode 17, we took a further look at how to run vehicle combat at Genesis and the very long explanation of the Encounter Zone rules, which will be available soon on the Foundry. Um, don't make yeah. any promises you can't get there, Uli. <laughs> yeah, I deserve that. And I resemble that comment, Chris. Seriously, though, this is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we're making these, shorter, these shows shorter, right? <laughs> right. Right. So with that in mind, tonight we'll be continuing our look at vehicles with two of the three Cs, uh, which is critical hits and collisions. The other one is going to be chases, and we'll talk about that at a later stage. But we're going to talk about... You said we were doing chases this episode. Well, yeah, look, I know, but uh, I think we need to cover the basics first, and these two things often occur during chases. So. yeah, true. Okay, okay. That's that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. And uh, guys, as we mentioned on our last episode on vehicles, we want to ensure that GMs and players alike can use the vehicle rules with ease. Yep. We want you to gain a better understanding of how these rules work, how to use them best in your game sessions. When you know where the rules fall down in some areas, and, and how to present them. Also, when you're creating your products for the foundry. That's right. Yeah. But Chris, as we do, we've spent a few hours already digging, really digging into the vehicle rules, um, and we don't really want to have to go and summarize them every single time we do this uh, this topic, right? Uh, that would be correct. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and to that end, guys, as, as Huli mentioned before, go back and check out episodes 15 and 17 of this podcast. Um, revisit them before listening to this episode. We are going to assume you have. So if something isn't making sense, go back. You listen. You re-listen. Do not worry. We wait. Okay, we're back. (laughs) That never gets old. All right, (laughs) let's get into this. Now, firstly, critical hits are some of the most uh, exciting and harrowing elements to vehicle combat. So before we get into it, how does a critical hit even happen? Chris? Well, um, critical hits come from, from making an attack roll where you do actual damage to a vehicle. And you roll a number of advantages equal to your weapon's critical rating or a triumph. Mm-hmm. It also occurs when you have a collision, but we will get to that in a bit. Mm-hmm. So, Huli, are there any other things that affect a critical hit? Yeah, there is quite a few. And, and that includes the vicious item quality. Now, as we mentioned and were corrected uh, back in uh, episode 17, uh, backed up by the latest uh, Genesis RPG errata, you can affect a critical hit roll with the vicious weapon quality. Now, this is an important correction that uh, that we didn't sort of kind of get our head around at the time, but obviously do now. But for every level of rating of uh, of vicious, you increase the roll on the critical hit by 10. We'll mm-hmm. get into that in a minute, how that occurs. So basically, if you have a savage transdimensional power axe, or similar nasty weapon from Keyforge, and yes, you can randomly generate that, um, that has a breach item quality, a hit against the family sedan is going to do some serious damage. So just to summarize that, the Mm. breach item quality ignores its rating in armor. All right, Right. so to put it another way, breach is to armor as pierce is to soak, right? Right, correct, yep. And then if you get hit, You have to do damage to the vehicle, and then Mm -hmm. if you damage it, and then if you roll enough advantages or a triumph, 
mm-hmm. you can then cause a critical hit. Right. You also don't have um, – you can't forget the 10 to 1 rule when applying personal scale damage to vehicle. We've spoken about that infinitum in the last two episodes. Yeah. Um, but uh, the next thing to remember is if the weapon you're using has that vicious item quality. Okay, so with that, can we use a a God help me a real example <laughs> of how that might look? Sure. Um, so, look, if we go back to episode seventeen, where we ran the first couple of rounds in in a vehicle combat, your, uh, for example, in in that Chris, your vehicle suffered a critical hit, and it was nasty. I'm having PTSD flashbacks <laughs> about that episode, um, but I do I do recall that yes. Right. So if the weapons the biker thugs were using had breach one, and that would have been scary, and your buggy had an armor of one, which it didn't, um, but if it did, those two things were real, the damage caused would need to be 10 or more. And this is important. You must round the personal scale damage down, not the planetary scale up. This is something that people do a little bit wrong. So in our example, if the buggy had an armor of one, um, don't think of it as 10 soak. Instead, if the weapon is personal scale, calculate the damage as normal first and then round that number down. In effect, it is the last calculation that you do before applying uh, any damage to the vehicle. So if the biker's weapons could ignore the armor on the buggy, it would need to do 10 or more damage have a chance to inflict a critical injury or any damage at all so so if the weapon did nine points on a a personal scale there's Mm -hmm. literally no damage caused at vehicle scale because it's not even breaking that 10 to 1 rule and therefore there's a chance of even doing a critical hit that's right yeah now if if it did do enough damage to go through the vehicle's armor uh did more damage to cause at least one point of planetary scale damage and they roll to triumph all the advantages that they need to activate the critical rating of the weapon, only then can they inflict a critical hit. So it works exactly the same as it does for personal combat. Well, what you're really talking there is, is my gosh, I mean, that's they need to roll 20 points of personal scale damage mm-hmm. with their armor of one. Right. Because they'd need 10 points of personal scale to get past the armor of one. Mm-hmm. And then another 10 points of personal scale to equate to one point of hull trauma. That's right. Exactly. Ooh. So, yeah, all said and done, personal scale weapons against vehicles, typically without breach, of course. Yep. Bad idea. <laughs> very, 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 very bad idea. Indeed. Okay. Indeed. Now, now, in our example, though, Huli, mm-hmm. there was no breach. And there was no armor, but mm-hmm. you did exceed 10 points of damage, if I recall correctly. Yep. And you rolled a triumph, right? Right. And this meant that we went to, and this is the next part of the process. We then went to table 3.2-19. Uh, um, it's like doing law. Uh, <laughs> it's, the, it's called the critical hit result chart. Uh, and it's on page 230 of the, of the core rulebook. Um, and you roll a D100. Now, for those beginners, uh, if you uh, have never, if this is the first episode that you've ever listened to and uh, you're really wanting to get into Genesis, but you don't want it, don't know what all these dice are, um, that it basically means that we roll two 10-sided dice. Normally, they're different colors. 
um, or the numbers of them have tens and units on them. Uh, so one is your tens and the other is your digits with double O being 100. All right. Now that I've or, explained. Or you can, you can go get one of those Zaki Hedrons. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, 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 I have one. Of course I have you do. one. Where it's a literal 100 sided die. It's like, it's just a ball covered in tiny, you know, and you just roll it until it stops and then argue over which number is directly on top. That's how, that's how you use it. Right. I could avoid that argument. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> You, you then add plus 10 from any previous critical hits that the vehicle has suffered, and in, uh, you uh, add an extra plus 10 if you've rolled more than one triumph, um, or enough advantages to activate another critical hit. Now, that's important because you can only ever receive one critical per hit. That's important yeah. when looking at linked. Go and look that up. I'm not going to explain it now. Um, but you also get plus 10 per rank of Vicious, as we explained before, that the item uh, has as part of its item qualities. And if I'm remembering back to that episode, I think when I rolled, I rolled Shrapnel Spray, right? Yeah, likely one of the worst on that table, I might add. T- tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> and And basically what happens is that once you've rolled that, um, you just follow the instructions on the entry. Now, we're not going to go through all of them as we, we know that all of our listeners can read. Uh, but something to note here is that this table works heavily with a sidebar on page 221, of, also of the core rulebook. Uh, if you can call it a sidebar, it's half a page. Half a page? Um, <laughs> half a freaking page! <laughs> yeah. And what it does is it explains what occurs to each component if some sort of damage occurs to it. Uh, and it can affect a whole heap of different things. Again, we're not going to go through that. Take a look at that table. It, the two of them work hand in hand. Yeah. And listen, as a GM, you're going to have to make a decision about results that don't affect the vehicle due to the components it has. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, for example, if you were to roll defenses damaged mm-hmm. um, and the vehicle has no defenses to speak of, what do you do? Mm. Look, we had a similar question in our last episode um, uh, in Under the Hammer. And scale, yeah. yeah, so I think the best thing to do here is just to let the dice fall as they may. Uh, and, you know, you just leave it up to the narrative description of what's going on. Um, if there are component hits on the vehicle that don't exist, then describe something narrative to equal something similar. So if you've got, um, we'll use the example that we've just talked about, about defenses, where it's going to give you a setback, or maybe something happens that causes a setback to another skill type, or, you know, something like that. Or it can just be describing that the wheel suddenly has gone all wobbly, and maybe a fear check might be required or something like that, that's, uh, that's really going to add to the narrative. Uh, you still treat it as a critical hit for the purpose of calculating any further critical hits later on at the level that it's suggesting. But you really don't have to do anything else. You don't have to do any major damage. This combat is deadly enough as it is. Uh, as I said, just ask Chris and what it's like to get shrapnel spray on everyone aboard your vehicle. I, 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 I did not like that. I, <laughs> I, did, I did not like that at all. Twas, think, twas disenjoyable. <laughs> I think I've apologised enough for that. Um, and uh, yeah, so just describe it narratively. 
Um, so just remember to to work on the side of the players to make it really fun and exciting. Now, Holy, as I'm sitting here looking at the table, I do think it's important to also say I I don't think we can talk about the the critical hits table without mentioning the severity. Can we? Mm. We can very briefly touch base on that. So um, the severity is the difficulty to repair that particular critical hit. Um, so, uh, you know, normally you'll use your mechanic skill. There are other options with athletics, etc. Um, but uh, repairing critical hits is something that realistically can't be done just on the fly uh, unless the GM allows it. For example, if you've got a, a small snub fighter or something like that, that chances are if you're getting a critical hit on your wing, you're not going to be go- able to go out and repair it. So use your own although, common although sense. I've had players, I've had players argue that they should be able to do that. <laughs> really? Oh, are you kidding? Of course. <laughs> He's like, well, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a flight suit that gives me six minutes of air. Um, <clears throat> sure. <laughs> you have some interesting players. <laughs> I just have players. That is true. That is true. So that pretty much is uh, critical hits in a nutshell. Uh, it's very, very simple. Just you've got those rules that you have to apply. That um, it's mainly from the perspective of personal scale weapons uh, versus vehicles, especially if you you know you're in a chase, which we'll get on to a later episode when you're starting shooting um, at uh, at vehicles with handguns and things like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, so yeah. Okay, so this leads us in, Huli, into now that we understand how crits work, mm. they are they are a natural component of the next thing we really do want to talk about this episode, yep. which is collisions. <laughs> what, what 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 about collisions, Huli? Because everyone's favorite thing to do in vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes and no, depending on how you're doing it. Um, uh, look, the, I had to do a little bit of research in in regards to this, and I'll explain why. So, collisions are covered on page 222 of the Genesis Core Rulebook, and there really are only two types of collisions. Uh, they're not noted in the, in the rules, but this is just what I call them. Forced, better known as ramming, and accidental. Both, both of them follow the same principle. Uh, the vehicles involved take either a minor or a major collision and suffer a critical hit no matter what damage occurs as a result. Now, on this, my best guess um, is it suffers damage equal to the silhouette of the vehicle, less the vehicle's armor rating. Now, this is based on the trimere that uh, we see in the EPG, which causes eight damage with its ram attack, uh, and it does have a silhouette of four. So something specifically designed for that type of thing should cause more damage than something that doesn't. And uh, I felt that uh, double the damage was uh, about right. But again, it doesn't, that's more of a house rule. Um, It's uh, it's not something which is specified. All that it specifies is that if there is a collision, they automatically suffer a critical hit. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, the trireme surprised me because, I mean, obviously it has that ram attack specifically Mm. designed for it. Um, up until then, at least in Genesis, I had never run damage for for collisions, mm-hmm. just just crits. Yep. Yep. Um, so, okay, you mentioned you mentioned minor and major collisions mm-hmm. earlier. Talk to me. Talk to me about, that, about that. Yeah. So it talks about it a lot in the book. Um, the uh, the minor collision it's basically just a glancing blow. Uh, so you know, like a side swipe or something like that. 
while a major collision is a full-on head-on collision. Now, unfortunately, there are no rules for determining which is which unless we turn back to Star (laughs) Wars. (laughs) Yeah, in Star Wars, there's an entire table for spending threat and despair in vehicle combat. Hmm. Um, uh, And in that, a fail check with despair is a major collision, while a successful check with despair is a minor collision. Hmm. Um, so, So what it boils down to is that you can use that (laughs) <laughs> um, tried and true formula that was tested out in Star Wars as a great yep. barometer. Mm-hmm. Or you can use the dice results. Yep. Yep. Um, and, and honestly, that comes down to the narrative. And I don't fault Genesis Hooli for not dictating to such a hard degree when you do a major, major collision or when you do a minor. Because yep. it's narrative. If I'm, if I'm racing a streetcar alongside somebody and we're shooting at each other and we're plowing down the road and, and I'd swerve my car into them to try and knock them into a wall. And the two cars are scraping against each other. That's, mm. that's, that's minor collision, right? Mm. Yeah. Major yeah. collision is I am ramming you. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, that's the, those are the, those are the two barometers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I'm pretty happy with uh, the, the way that uh, Star Wars has done it, but obviously um, you know, the the Genesis has taken the more general approach because we do have things, you know, it, it has to range all the way from um, a horse-drawn cart all the way up to, you know, um, the latest advanced TIE fighter. Um, so it really needs to sort of, it, it had to be more generic, which, um, you know, uh, Star Wars didn't need to be because most things fly. Um, and there was a defined space battles that is part of the the whole you know Star Wars trope, I guess. So um, you know, uh, I, I think you can just use uh, if you've got a buttload of threats or if you've got yeah. uh, despairs, just uh, looking at collisions uh, to uh, to be part of the result. Now, as we can see from the previous episode, as well as what we've talked about already, when it comes to critical hits. Remember that critical hits are nasty. They and when it comes to to vehicles, PCs have to repair them too. Now, there's not a lot of yeah. rules under uh, under Genesis for that, uh, but um, you know it does cost money for uh, for the PCs to go and repair stuff. Um, you know, with Star Wars, it was like 500 credits or something like that for each hull point. And if you've got a vehicle that's got 30 odd hull points, that's a lot of change. It's a lot. It's a lot. Now, obviously, the severity of the critical you're going to receive when you do, when you have a collision, I'm assuming it's going to be a lot worse for a major than a minor. Yeah, 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 it is. Now, I'll explain that. So basically, uh, in a minor collision, you reduce the critical hit roll on the table by 10 times the vehicle's defense. So if you've got a vehicle um, that has like, I don't know, a magnetized hull or something like that, uh, that gives us gives it a defense of two, it reduces the critical hit roll by 20. Similarly, a major collision follows that same principle, but the multiplier is only five, not 10. In both circumstances, though, if the result results in the critical hit becoming a result of less than zero, it's cancelled out completely. The vehicle does not suffer that critical hit. The other thing to remember here is the speed of the vehicle. Now, speed affects the size of a critical hit. So make sure that you're checking out table 3.2-14, 
vehicle speeds in structured encounters, where at speed three to four, you're going to be adding plus 20 to any critical hits. And at speed five, it's plus 40. So at speed five, and if you hit something, prepare to be a bug on a windshield. Um, (laughs) Because you're going straight to the top of that chart, or the bottom of the chart almost. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and the way I like to think about this is, um, <clears throat> I often use the example of a, uh, talking about both both aspects, hmm. minor versus major critical hits by vehicle type, and how important defense is. Okay, hmm. and then speed. I think about a bicycle. Hmm. All right. So if you stat out a bicycle in Genesis, that is a vehicle with zero defense. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Earlier we talked about the example of cars glancing alongside each other in a chase. Hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a minor collision. Yep. If a car glanced against a bicycle, <laughs> that is also technically a minor collision. Right. However, a bicycle, unlike a car, is not going to have defense. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Therefore, there will be no critical hit reduction, yep. meaning that a sideswipe from a car, even though it's a minor, or, or even from a bike, for that matter, if two bikes plow into each other, that mm. can be disastrously catastrophic for both vehicles okay <laughs> even, even if it's a minor collision or a sideswipe i mean mm. you're not gonna get any crit reduction it can get hairy and really bad all right mm-hmm. um and and then of course speed is also obvious okay if 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 you're riding down the sidewalk on training wheels okay and you have a minor critical hit um it, it's not going to be bolstered by your speed any if I'm going down the side of a mountain on a bicycle and mm. I crash out, yeah, I'm going to get some pluses to the critical hit. Yeah. It's like very basic common sense stuff. Yeah, you know? exactly. But I'd, I'd really like to get back to, you mentioned earlier, um, forced versus accidental collisions, which obviously mm. are not, not book terms. They're your no. terms, right? Yeah, absolutely. But what is the difference there? What does that mean in, in the context of this discussion? Well, look, um, the accidental is there is absolutely no intention to ram or damage the opposing vehicle or object at all. Um, you know, this one's a lot easier and it occurs, as we explained um, uh, just before, it's either a major or a minor collision, depending on the narrative. Uh, one thing that I did want to mention very quickly um, is when it comes to vehicle speed, something that you may consider as well, depending on the narrative and depending on how they're colliding if we and i don't like to bring any sort of physics into these games at all but if two vehicles are going at full speed towards each other and they are colliding technically speaking it's both of their speeds combined so if you've got two vehicles uh, speeding at speed five um, or to put it into real terms if they're speeding at 50 k's an hour the collision is actually occurring at 100 k's an hour. Uh, kilometres for uh, for those who uh, are outside of um, <clears throat> the US. Um, I don't don't know the uh, <laughs> the translation into into miles, Chris, but uh, you might be able to miles help me out. per hour. Miles per hour, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so you're multiplying the speeds. So something that you might want to consider, depending on the narrative, is that if you've got two vehicles that um, you can't obviously go past speed five, but if you've got two vehicles traveling at speed two and they collide with each other head on for whatever reason, maybe there's multiple tribes, you might want to consider 
the upgrading that uh, that damage to what it would be at speed five. But that's a side note. And that's obviously a house rule. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, not, not rules as written, but but it, but a good suggestion for those unusual circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, accidental, no intention to uh, to run into anything. The forced, however, is a little bit different, and that's basically where there is an intention to ram the opposing vehicle or object. Um, so uh, you know, if you're into street racing or whatever else, and you're part of a street gang undercover cop or something like that. Um, not that I'm going to go down Fast and Furious at all. Um, but <laughs> but if you had to do a, um, uh, you know, you had to run your vehicle into a shop to uh, steal electrical parts or, or whatever else, a ram raid we would call it in Australia. I don't know what you guys call it over there. Um, but uh, that is something that is intentional and that's where these rules come in. Again, there is no rules for this in the core rulebook. So again, we have to look towards Star Wars. And this was really, really obscure and hard to find. I had to ask a couple of people because there are a lot of books, um, in uh, which means tons of pages, and none of it is in electronic format. So you can't just go find this. So you've actually got to go through it manually. Um, but there is an obscure uh, reference. It's a sidebar, and it's really small on uh, page 65 of Stay on Target, uh, which is the uh, the career book for aces. And basically it says that an action is needed, uh, and the difficulty works exactly the same as gain the advantage, which is awesome because gain the advantage is still in Genesis. Now, there could be some argument that, well, you know, to even collide with something, does it need to be speed four? No. no. What it's talking about here is the difficulty is calculated in the same way as you do for gain the advantage. It's not so, saying you have to perform the gain the advantage actual maneuver. Correct. It's, yeah. It's, it's it's saying specifically, it's just, it uses that same difficulty formula calculation in Star Wars. Yep. Um, and, and this comes down to also with force collisions, Julia, like, I don't even know if you should even put a speed limit on mm, uh, like no. a minimum because like the, the, the first vehicle to even hint at the ability to have force collisions is obviously the trireme from the expanded players guide. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it has a max speed of two because mm. it's a trireme. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that's um, don't even look at um, uh, the speed limitation for, uh, for gain the advantage. Um, you might also want to consider creating talents, perhaps, for uh, ship captains to add setback or upgrade the difficulty of ramming checks, if you're talking about capital ships um, or things like um, sailing vessels and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, there may be another opportunity in there for a Tier 1 talent uh, that may be ranked to increase a cr- critical hit roll by 5 per rank. Um, so uh, if you're... You know, if you were to call it something like, oh, I'm taking you with me or something like that. Oh, that- I'd make it 10 per rank. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's plus 50, though, Chris. That's a lot of points uh, <laughs> when you start looking at it. So, um, so yeah. Well, hey, if, you, if, you're, if you're willing to pump, uh, I'm sorry, that much XP into five talents. Mm. Mm. Um, that's true. That is true. And get all the way to tier five. You deserve it. Sorry. Yeah, true. Um, no, that's fair. That's fair. 
Uh, and you've also got some rules in the EPG, uh, which talk about, as uh, as Chris mentioned, or sorry, as I mentioned before, uh, the Tremere, uh, as well as um, there's some rules in there from the buggy that we used in our example combat. Now, the other thing to remember is the vehicle also needs to make it into engaged range with its target. And the best way to do that is through the reposition maneuver. So, uh, but you can do it, according to Sam Stewart, you can do it using your forced movement. So that's pretty important too. So it has to be engaged. Um, it uh, works exactly the same as gain the advantage, which is cool. Um, and, you know, speed is also going to play a factor as normal. And uh, you might want to consider adding the speeds, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't forget silhouettes as well. That that can play a big part because obviously if you're in a small stub fighter and you're trying to ram the side of a battleship, it's probably going to be just that little bit easier uh, than it is to, uh, you know, do the opposite, I guess. <laughs> so, um, and if that is successful, uh, your vehicle takes a minor collision while the other vehicle takes a major collision. But if you fail you both take major collisions. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, because obviously the, the reason why you're taking a minor collision, uh, if you're successful, is that you're never going to intentionally just destroy yourself. Um, they've taken that in consideration. But these things aren't easy because you've got all of these upgrades and whatever else because you're not going to be doing this at speed one. Um, some things from the creative side of things is that, um, if that sort of thing is going to be an important part of your story, um, and, uh, you know, if you're doing a Pirates of the Caribbean type thing where there is a lot of these, you know, ramming attacks, um, or things like that, that you might want to consider creating talents for, for your ship's captains, um, to, uh, to add setback or, or auto upgrade the difficulty of ramming checks. So, uh, so... Wait, yeah. You got all you got all this coming in, right? All these factors mm. take into place, right? But you know, and so if if we follow the Star Wars system recommendation, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. and and you you make that check with a difficulty uh, determined similar to how it is with gain the advantage using that mm-hmm. same formulae. Mm-hmm. Um, what happens if you're successful? What happens if you fail? Well, if you're successful, and this is the same with, um, uh, this basically comes down to if it's successful, um, both vehicles take a, um, a collision. Now, this is where it's, it's a little bit different. The, what it says in, uh, in Stay on Target um, is it says that uh, if the character succeeds, they resolve a collision against the target as outlined in the collision sidebar on page 256 um, of Age of Rebellion, which basically all that it's saying is that um, you take a minor collision um, if uh, if you basically didn't mean it, uh, while other vehicles, uh, well, the other vehicle that you're colliding with takes a major collision. If you fail, though, you both take a major collision. So uh, that's something to consider as so well. So once you commit to this action, a mm. collision is going to happen. Yeah. Okay. Correct. When you've made the maneuver to engage, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. If you're successful, you suffer a minor collision. They suffer a major collision. If you are unsuccessful, if you fail the check, you both suffer major collisions. Correct. With, with silhouette and speed being a full part of that. Mm-hmm. 
and yeah, <laughs> it's um, very bad. <laughs> so if you're if you're gonna use this forced rule brought in from Star Wars, I also have another suggestion yep. that I would I would make um, based on my many years of running this in Star Wars. Right. If the vehicle has defense. Mm-hmm. In certain circumstances, <laughs> yes, you may want to allow that to affect the role. Now, hmm. it's it's the problem is that defense, as you mentioned before, is also calculated as a part of the collision result, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you you may or may not want to do that. Hmm. It it, dep- it depends on what type of defense it is. I'll be perfectly honest. Hmm. Um, I would really only do it for space opera or sci-fi games because their defense comes down to stuff like energy shielding, yep. which can literally glance things off. If you're not mm-hmm. dealing with that, I really wouldn't do it. But I don't know. It's just one other takeaway that I've I've seen a lot of house ruling being added in for very common reasons to make uh, forced critical hits a lot or forced collisions a lot more impactful in spaceship combat. Mm-hmm. And really, that's the first time that we see anything in Genesis like that. The first time that I recall seeing anything similar to that um, was uh, when they started talking about the uh, the what is it the hammerhead vehicle uh, that they uh, that they used in Rogue One. Um, but that also appears earlier on in another book as well. So uh, these are things that, um, you know, the, that it's basically saying that it reduces the amount of damage that it needs to or reduces the critical because it's designed to, to collide with something that it's, that's its purpose. So if, right. it, if it's hitting, it's going to reduce, but the other party, because it's designed for, for that purpose, is going to take extra damage as well. And that's how the um, uh, Tarim does as well. So, um, so yeah. So that's pretty much it in a nutshell for uh, for the forced side of things. So, uh, so yeah. So, hopefully, uh, that's given you a really good idea as to, um, you know, how to look at collisions uh, and uh, how to look at at uh, critical injuries and and how they operate. And I know that uh, there is a fantastic supplement, uh, which is by um, Joshua, I can't remember his last name. Josh Taylor. Josh Taylor, thank you, uh, that uh, has done one uh, which talks about critical injuries and critical hits, uh, and it's absolutely fantastic. So uh, go and have a bit of a hunt uh, for that uh, on the Foundry as well. So, So, yeah, so that's pretty much it, Chris. Good discussion. I think we've teed things nicely up now that we have all these dominoes in place to get to chases when we return to vehicles next time. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, it's very, very, very good. Yeah. Well, Holy, I think it is now time that we head into something new and something quite exciting. Indeed. I can't wait for this as it's been, you know, a long time coming. We've been talking about it for a while. But more importantly, I think it's really going to be a benefit to many GMs out there for sure. I, I can I couldn't agree more. Um, hmm. I, I'm kind of sad because you weren't able to make it for the inaugural conversation or the, of this segment. I was not, unfortunately. But um, yeah, you know, when you're trying to organise everyone, uh, it's uh, it's important to uh, to stick to those deadlines. So uh, you were gracious enough to uh, to interview uh, Eric in relation to that. So um, so yes, yeah. 
and it was it was a fun conversation and and uh i i can't wait to enter this new section of the forge because mm. the anvil is nice <laughs> and warm i think we should too because it's time for our very first segment of eberron reforged eberron reforged Genesis is an amazing system, and fans and players the world over are taking this incredible building block narrative dice framework and applying it to many genres and existing settings. And here at The Forge, we are all about giving you the tools you need to bring your favorite settings to the table with this system. But while that often means original content, that's not always the case. In fact, for truly dedicated fans of existing settings, finding a way to bring those settings into the Genesis system is a labor of love that can breathe new life and new gaming experiences into what seems like familiar territory. And to that end, we are proud to welcome for his very first appearance on the show, Eric Strimple, or DM Eric, one of the brains behind the Geek Pantheon and Knowledge Check podcasts, but perhaps most notably to our listeners, as the GM and producer of D20 Radio's own actual play podcast, Eberron Renewed. For over three years, and at the time of this recording, Eric, 165 episodes? Um, (laughs) Eberron Renewed has been a gem of an actual play podcast that began uh, by role-playing D&D 5th Edition in the fan-loved Eberron campaign setting, a fantasy steampunk high-magic romp created by the legendary Keith Baker. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm excited. Oh, we're excited too, man. So, dude, listen, Eberron Renewed has always been a great pleasure to listen to for many of us, but 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 Genesis fans should take a strong note to listen now, because after the conclusion of your first three-year Eberron campaign in 5th edition D&D, um, the, the Eberron Renewed crew decided, starting with, what, episode 161, I think? I believe so, yeah. Um, to, to launch an entirely new Eberron campaign, but not with the Dungeons & Dragons system. You guys are now using Genesis. And and listeners, as you can imagine, this required a tremendous amount of planning and design uh, from Eric and the rest of the cast in order to make this massive port possible. Which brings us all to tonight and the inauguration of a brand new segment for the Forge podcast eberron reforged in this recurring segment we're going to be diving deep into this genesis conversion with eric we're going to take a look at the choices that eberron renewed has made in terms of creating species careers talents skills magic and much 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 more and so to that end eric um you know, I really want to dive into this and before we get started on tonight's uh, you know segment of eberron reforged dude tell us about the show and 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 why you all decided to switch from the world's most popular RPG system to one of our favorites, Genesis. <laughs> um, well, it was solely a business decision. You know, we thought appealing to a smaller audience would be the the right way to go. <laughs> I'm I'm of course kidding. No, for your listeners who didn't listen to the first campaign of Eberron Renewed, it like many D and D campaigns. Once you get past the eighth level you're dealing with demigods at best uh, in terms of your PCs and their power level. And that's a feature of the D&D system. But we wanted to, and I I was kind of driving the desire to tell a different kind of story. I wanted to tell a a much more low-level feel throughout the campaign. And the the best way I kind of pitched it to my players and then explained to our listeners is campaign one was the Avengers. And we want campaign two to be the Defenders. 
Nice. <laughs> yeah. And without hacking the system apart, there's not a great way to tell a really kind of low power D&D campaign all the way through if you have any kind of magic involved because you just get so powerful. So we were really trying to avoid the D&D power creep and the the PCs beginning to feel larger than life. We wanted to tell a much more human story. And then also, kind of selfishly, uh, D&D, when we first started this campaign, D&D hadn't touched Eberron yet in 5th edition. And so that afforded us a lot of freedom to say, well, yeah, it worked this way in 3.5, it worked this way in 4th edition, but we don't have any reference point for 5th edition, so we're going to do it this way. And there's not anything anybody can say about it. And now D&D 5th edition has started producing Eberron content, and we don't want to be uh, handcuffed to... Watsi's interpretation of Warforged and the Kalistar and Shifters. Um, and so going to a different system afforded us a lot more freedom, both in the just the way Genesis functions as a system, but then also our ability to homebrew things without listeners going, well, why aren't you just using the Artificer class that Watsi provided and not having to respond, we don't like it. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So those are all the the different uh, wheels turning in my head as the end of the first campaign was on the horizon. And I started thinking about the future for the show. And you and I actually had a long conversation uh, one night about that decision and kind of just also just having fatigue. I mean, we've been playing the same system for three years. Uh, this is my only game that I get to play because on top of running the game, I also produce the show. And so I don't have time for a lot of other home games. And so this game is the system that I get to play in. And I was ready to run in a different system. So that's that's why we, we decided to switch from the world's most popular RPG. <laughs> well, okay, so then the, that begs the question, why Genesis? Um, and what, what made it the appealing choice? Because, I mean, I, I know I ran uh, Star Wars for your group in a, in a massive... 12 hour session that actually got released into a series of episodes last summer on, on the order 66 podcast one of the other shows I co-host. Um, and obviously that's a the, very similar to system to Genesis in most respects. And I know just recently I, I got the chance to, to run um, a, a Genesis game for you guys, a one shot in, in dusters and dragons um, that was released as a special series of episodes on your, on your podcast. But I mean, outside of that, I mean, that's the experience you guys have had for the most part. What, what made you decide to move to this system? Yeah, it's a simple situation, kind of like what I alluded to, that it's it's the system that at least me and Philip, who have the most experience in our group uh, with Genesis, wanted to play. Um, we both had kind of discussed the fact, especially when Genesis first launched, about how cool it would be to try and put something together uh, for Eberron out of Genesis. Uh, but there were a lot of holes in that play. And we're like, well, I mean, there'd be so much work to do. And then Terranoth came out and was like, well, now there's a lot less work to do. Um, and then Shadow of the Beanstalk came out. And it's like, well, now we're getting even closer to just being able to mash all of this stuff together. And fortunately, Keyforge has been kind of the final puzzle piece for an, a virtually fully realized Eberron in Genesis. All the tools are there. Like, because the obvious uh, other candidates would be like Savage Worlds, because a lot of people play Eberron using the Savage World system. Oh, yeah. And obviously, Fate is a great system. Uh, and there, there's all sorts of systems out there. Uh, but for a pulpy, high action, yet relatively low power type of story, Genesis just 
it, it, it has the flexibility to fit the bill. And we wanted a system uh, that could support Eberron if for some reason the players grow sick of being locked into the the lower levels of Sharn, which is where we're currently set, and they want to <laughs> leave the city and go explore on Dare or the Eldine Reaches or Valinar, we need a system with the adaptability and the flexibility to handle both a gritty uh, urban style campaign and a high fantasy courtly drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And Genesis has that capacity a lot of systems do uh but also genesis is the system that i'm familiar with i played savage world once i played fate a couple of times um the two systems that i'm most comfortable running would be D and genesis and by virtue of that star wars mm-hmm. well i'm very excited and as, as those of us who've been listening to these first few episodes and really seeing the the interpretation as as you guys are really in some cases, for some of your players, really learning the system and diving into it for the first time. And so all of that leads us to to, to this series and honestly the 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 preparation and the how many how many hours of <laughs> of writing and preparation did you and the others do to to create this conversion for Eberron? Um so the conversations first started between me and Philip probably this time last year is when it was finally like, okay, we're going to do this. And and not to knock Jeff, Trevor, or Randy, uh, but they have, at best, minimal experience with Genesis. And so they just didn't wouldn't have the skill set to uh, have a hand in the adaptation process. Um, and so Philip helped in the early stages quite a bit. And then I just kind of hit a point where I was like, I'm going to put my head down and really start slogging away. Uh, but what I did and what I would recommend anybody doing, if you're looking at, uh, doing this kind of adaptation for Genesis, I started doing like stuff like the skill list and talents and things that were going to be needed regardless of player choices. But then I started waiting until I started hearing from my players about what they wanted to play. So the first one out of the gate was Philip wanting to do a hobgoblin artificer. And so it was like, okay, I need to look at the Hobgoblin archetype and I need to start working on Artificer and by virtue of that Artifice magic. And then Jeff said, I think a Goliath Monk would be cool to play. And so I started working on Goliath and Monk talents. So there are still plenty of gaps in Eberron with my personal conversion, <laughs> um, like like a codified version of Dragon Marks. We don't have that yet, even though it's one of the most iconic parts of Eberron because none of my players wanted it. So I was able to kind of punt that down the field and be like, I'll get to that <laughs> later. Um, so, um, so yeah, I very much listened to what the players wanted and started building from there because I knew that's what I needed to have. But at this point, I do have quite a few more uh, archetypes. Let's see, I have a dozen archetypes built now, like 60 pages of worth of talents in a word document, uh, a good amount of careers. So I, I continued building, even though the campaign doesn't need it just to kind of continue to fully build that out in case somebody dies and we need to build a new character. So <laughs> I want to have some <laughs> options ready for them. Well, okay. You mentioned something, which is really the topic we'd like to start with tonight for this inaugural episode, because when we talk about either, whether it's building your own setting from, from, from whole cloth or whether it's doing a conversion of an existing intellectual property, as you've done with Eberron, when you're laying those first foundational steps, it really starts and ends with skills. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, skills inform inform everything it's from species, uh, you know, uh, that, that you're going to create and archetypes to career creation, obviously, to also talents because talents are informed by skills to equipment to to magic to to everything. Yeah, yeah, I I, I knew that that was uh, step one of the process was sitting down and figuring out. Okay, obviously, for a fantasy setting like Eberron, Terranoth is a good place to start. Uh, but that was also one of the first questions we got from a listener is, did you just pull the skill list whole cloth? And you you can't do that because Terranoth has a lot of stuff that Eberron doesn't and vice versa. But my mentality, and there's a great bit of advice uh, from a YouTube channel called WebDM. They're a D&D dedicated channel, but their, their quote that I love is, the stuff in the player's handbook is what is available to the players, not everything that exists in the world. Right, And I think a lot of people get hung up on that idea. So for me, skill list is how as a GM or if you're creating something for the foundry and you're creating a setting, you communicate to the players. Here are the important things for heroes in this world to know. Most fantasy settings, farming is one of the most important skills a person could have in that (laughs) setting. You don't see it on a PC skill list because you don't need to make that check as a PC. And so I really wanted to communicate. That's why if if we were doing another high fantasy style campaign like uh, campaign one, I probably wouldn't had knowledge underworld. And we'll get into the exact knowledge skills and all the skills that that I put in there. But that's one that was definitely like, okay, this has to be in here because of the type of campaign I'm wanting to do. That was my mentality is really communicating to the players. This, these are the things that a hero would need for this story that I'm trying to tell. Mm. Okay, so let's then talk about the skills that you ended up with. And to have a meaningful conversation here, let's, let's just lay it out. And, and maybe you can tell us by skill type what skills you ended up with on the final skill list. Yeah. Um, for social skills, it's the fabulous five. Charm, coercion, deception, leadership, negotiation. Uh, no need to re- reinvent the wheel there. They did a great job of picking what social skills were going to be needed. For general skills, we went with alchemy, athletics, cool, coordination, discipline, mechanics, medicine, operating, perception, piloting, resilience, writing, skullduggery, stealth, streetwise, survival, and vigilance. And then for the knowledge skills, adventuring, nature, lore, society, and underworld. Oh, you went with five. Yep. Cool. Um, well, can't wait to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> uh, combat skills. We went with melee light and melee heavy, ranged and brawl, your classic fantasy. Uh, and then for magic skills, arcana, artifice, divine, primal, and verse. Interesting. So we have the creation of a new and quite frankly fitting for those who know the setting magic skill, but we'll, we'll come to that. Oh, boy. That- so... <laughs> Okay, let's let's talk through so some of these. I, I don't want to belabor every one of these because some of these make just way too much sense. Yeah, but 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 I do want to talk through uh, you know the the skill choices by type, what you chose to include, but also what you chose to omit, um, and, and and why, as well as very importantly, take a look at some of the new skills you created for this setting and why, um, and. You know, I, I guess we, we could probably start with social skills since you did. You know, as you said, the, there wasn't much to change there, and, yeah. and typically for most settings, there wouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's with social skills, it it really once again comes down to how are you communicating to your players? If if this was going to be a social first campaign, then I might have tried to like break some stuff down a bit more. Um, a big thing is I think three of my PCs uh, perform with some kind of instrument. 
And a big question early on was, well, how do we do performance checks? And my response to them was, well, what is the intention of your performance? Like, are you trying to charm people? Are you trying to like rally troops? I mean, it's all still covered in social skills, but if it was a really important thing for them to have some sort of performance skill, then it it might've warranted creating something. But when push came to shove, I feel like Genesis does a really good job of, you can just ask that question, regardless of what somebody's doing, what is the intention behind the action? That is the skill that you need to use with a social environment. Well said, very well said. Okay, so then we move into general skills. Now, you 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 immediately eschewed some of the things that are obviously completely off tone for the setting. So I don't know if much explanation is needed, but we're not going to find astrocartography. Yeah. We're not we're not going to find computers, right? Yeah. Um, we're not going to find driving. Um, uh, although you did keep operating and piloting, but we'll we'll, we'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, so in terms of the general skills, though, um, I mean. What's important here for Eberron? Because I think I think some of the things that often get, you know, moved out of the way for a fantasy setting, you really did have to consider here. Um, especially talking about mechanics, what skullduggery, piloting and riding. I mean, like... Yeah. Uh, so for your listeners that aren't familiar with Eberron, um, Eberron is is what if magic replaced technology and fueled technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... An important thing with a skill like mechanics that I made clear to um, to Philip for his character is like mechanics isn't just nuts and bolts in Eberron. It, because magic infuses this whole world, mechanics is also fixing magical things like working with arcane items. And uh, Trevor is playing your classic elf scoundrel and – I told him skullduggery covers arcane locks because it just wouldn't make sense for somebody who was good at lock picking to not be prepared to deal with magical locks in a world that everybody locks their door with a magical lock practically. Right. Um, and so I think that's uh, a wrinkle with uh, settings that have magic everywhere is looking at your general skills outside of the magic skills and saying, okay, well, what would it be reasonable that somebody piloting a magically infused ship piloting would still cover that. It's not only your typical flying ship with wind sails or whatever. Um, And so that was an important thing for me to communicate to my players is for a setting like Eberron magic doesn't only exist in the magic skills and for things like piloting and riding uh, there was conversations around keeping driving in there because it's an urban uh, setting and there's things called sky coaches in Eberron that are like small ships that people drive around like in uh, episode two, attack of the clones, the Coruscant scene, the car chase. That's what it looks like between the towers of Sharn, except with like wooden boats flying around everywhere. Right. And so it was like, well, b- my mentality has always been if there are three dimensions of movement, then it's piloting. Like if you have to worry about what's above and below you, then you're piloting a thing. You're no longer driving a thing. Um, so that's why I eliminated driving and kept piloting in the Eberron flavor. And then if it's like a stagecoach or something with any kind of animal interaction, then it would fall to riding. 
So, and that's that's pretty common for most fantasy settings, I would think, in terms of writing. What's interesting is, you know, operating is also a very common skill in fantasy settings, but that's because of, you know, you know, the, the, we're, we're even, even, even your most rudimentary fan, fantasy setting has sailing ships, you yeah. know what I mean? And, and that's the skill used to operate them. I'd love to talk about the distinction for you between operating and piloting, because we've discussed this, we, we actually discussed this at length on this very show. So, yeah. I mean, from, from your perspective, how does that line out in Eberron? So Eberron has a lot of wonderful uh, things that are much bigger than than a fantasy setting would typically allow because of the infused nature of magic. And like you said, operating is typically used for sailing ships, but Eberron has airships that fly throughout the air that require large crews. And they've also introduced like uh, in fifth edition, uh, some larger than life land vehicles as well that it wouldn't be reasonable for a single person to be behind the wheel driving the thing. It requires coordinating multiple people uh, to, to facilitate this thing actually moving. Um, so that's, that's why operating was kept in there is because while in our first campaign, uh, just by virtue of necessity, the airship didn't have a full crew on it. They were going bare bones um, in this campaign because they're less powerful uh, if they need an airship and they try to commandeer an airship, it's going to be an operating check to get people on board and coordinated to actually get this thing going. Uh, so that's that's why that one was was kept in and where it would come into play as opposed to just a straight up piloting check. Um, so, yeah, Inter- interesting insight. OK, and I, I totally I totally see where you're coming from with it. I, I, I would have done the same thing. Um Okay, let's talk about what is sure to be the most contentious aspect <laughs> of 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 skill conversion for Eberron, and that is the knowledge skills. Now, on on this podcast, we've always said, you know, when you're when you're doing knowledge skills, you want to shoot for four, maybe five, that's okay. But we often talk about how it's incredibly important to find out, you know, to, to think about you you made a point earlier, uh, you know, that that excellent advice from 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 WebDM that What's available to the players is not everything that exists in the world. That there are tons of areas of knowledge that it's just, it's not, it's not fitting for a PC to take ranks in because it doesn't have a meaningful impact on the story. Mm-hmm. What you've done here, and, and I'm I'm as big an Eberron junkie as you, and I, I know the world quite well. Um, some might be surprised by your uh, selections. So, can you talk about each of these? Yeah. So. Once again, the, uh, for people that tuned out when I was just reading a long list of words, <laughs> adventuring, nature, lore, society, and underworld are the five that I went with. And I, I feel like for especially any kind of pulpy uh, setting, adventuring is a, a skill that has so much utility and can serve well in so many situations that uh, I wanted to keep it included. And also it is the skill that the artifice magic skill pings off of for those uh, effects that are X amount of ranks in knowledge skill. Um, and then nature, I, I kicked around nature versus geography, but given the nature of the campaign and the lack of travel that I anticipated happening, geography from just a, um, a semantic point didn't make sense because they're not going to need to know the lay of the land and how to get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. but nature encountering natural things, uh, fungus growing somewhere in the, uh, the base of the towers of Sharn or a type of rock or something made a lot more sense and a skill that they might need to actually employ at certain points in the campaign. And then 
lore is obviously covering your your history, religion, all like that long list of knowledge skills that like D&D and Pathfinder have that's basically just the lore of the world. Um so lumping those all together made sense uh just to prevent the spreading out too much of XP. Um I didn't want to break it down too much for them. Uh, and then society and underworld were kind of two sides of the same coin, but I wanted there to be a distinction between uh, the upper levels of Sharn and the lower levels, because you're going to know different things based on where you're from, based on the type of people that you interact with. And it's great for our party because we have one character whose background existed in the upper echelons of Sharn and one character who has pretty much always existed since they've come to Sharn in the underworld. So having that dichotomy of knowledge was really important because you could have just had society and used it for checks with gangsters and stuff like that. But I felt like, especially given the background of my various PCs, allowing that distinction for their sake uh, was really important. Now, one of the things that I I can hear listeners crying out when they hear this is, you know, as you point out, you know, Eberron is a a high magic setting. Mm -hmm. Um, or, I mean, if you want to get technical, it's really a low magic setting. It's just pervasive magic. Widespread right? low magic. I think it's how Wide- bigger, bigger. Yeah, it's how bigger. Widespread low magic. So how do you handle generalized knowledge of – you may have already answered this in a roundabout way. But how do you handle the, a, a knowledge skill for a generalized understanding of magic and magical effects, which is a very common skill we see in other fantasy settings? Yeah, I, it, it once again comes down to the, uh, the essence of the magic is is how i handle it in my game so uh if it's if it's understanding some runic carvings in a wall or in even an arcane lock it's probably going to come down to lore but if it's an arcane trap i would i would gladly accept an adventuring check because an adventurer would probably know something about arcane traps um and then more primal magic like druidic circles things like that nature check totally works um i i think kind of what what we said, it's widespread low magic, which means the magic doesn't exist in a single arcane skill. It spreads out over uh, every part of life in Eberron and therefore every type of knowledge in Eberron. So that that's how I intend to handle it is arc- arcana checks don't exist. It's if it's something that deals more with society, um, like I want to check out this uh, this thing that amplifies sound that is in this person's house and it's like just a music speaker or something like that, it might be a society check because those are the situations where you interact with those kinds of things. So once again, keeping it open for what's the motivation behind the magic informs what knowledge skill would be attached to it. So that's a fascinating way to think about it. Um, and and it, it really builds on the generalized understanding of the world. So I, w- I was eager to get to talk about that. Well, very cool. Okay, so then we have combat skills, and you had said melee light, melee heavy, ranged, and brawl. Okay? Yep. So brawl totally makes sense. Um, talk to me about the decision to break up melee and keep ranged as a single skill, and that's that's pretty common to fantasy settings. But is you know yeah. Talk, talk about that. And I, 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 I listened to the advice that came off of this very show in one of your early episodes that was don't split both and don't keep both singular. Like, because they're that it's a balancing thing. And when it came down to it, because obviously there are plenty of uh, ranged weapons that it makes sense would require a lot more strength to utilize or, or they're a lot more unwieldy. 
but it just seemed a bit too pedantic to say, well, a heavy crossbow is going to require ranged heavy and a short bow is going to require ranged light. Um, it's just ranged. And, uh, but with melee, even in a, as pervasive a magic setting as Eberron is, you still have rapiers and daggers versus great axes and war hammers. Right. And so I, I just kind of like with the social skills, no need to reinvent the wheel. And we weren't going to, uh, a lot of people when Jeff decided, uh, he was going to be a monk, uh, not just you. I had a conversation with you where you said it, but also our listeners, um, the ones who play Genesis are all huge fans of Keith Cappell's ready fight. And they were all like, Oh, you have to go <laughs> you, use that, use that for Jeff's monk. And it was just like, but it, then I have to have that be just in the skill list. If I'm going to break down brawl that much, and so I didn't go with that. I stole plenty of talents from it. Thank you, Keith. Um, <laughs> but uh, I decided to keep Brawl a single skill and range a single skill just because there wasn't enough distinction in the items available to the players to justify forcing the players to spread out their XP that much. Fair enough. So talk to me about the lack of gunnery. Um, you know, Eberron is a, a setting where you've got operating as a as an obvious skill and you know airships and and high seas and high skies piracy are a real thing yep um so how are you handling shipborne combat um so i decided ultimately to take the stance of a given the nature of the campaign and what i had laid out to my players in session one or session zero uh rather uh none of them were going to take gunnery even if it was on the skill list because none of them are going to anticipate needing that because I've told them it's an urban campaign. We're not going to be traipsing around the entirety of Corvair on an airship. And also I really feel like the distinction in like a sci-fi setting or star Wars, the difference between using a rifle and using a giant machine gun on the back of a, a, a ship, there's a greater separation of skill there than a crossbow and a really big crossbow mounted to the side of a ship. <laughs> if that makes sense. And and that's yeah. primarily what you're going to be dealing with even in Eberron when it comes to ship to ship combat is just a bigger thing. So point and shoot, use your range skill. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's not the most fun answer, but that's the answer I got. <laughs> I got. Well, no, it all makes good sense. And But what, what I think is really important for a takeaway here is it comes down to what the party is actually going to be using. Yeah. And, you know, we've, we've, we've said similar things on this show before, but it's, it's wonderful to see this in practice um, for a, a real conversion that's going to inform hopefully hundreds of episodes to come of, a, of an actual play podcast that, you know, everything you did was ta- you mentioned it to begin with was tailored to what your goals were for the campaign. Yeah. So that's that's key. Now, speaking of that, that leads us to the last area of skills to really talk about and what will surely no doubt be the second most contentious oh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, aspect of this entire endeavor. Um, and that is magic skills. Now, you had said um, uh, you had said arcana, artifice, divine, primal and verse. Yes. Um, talk to me. Talk to me about this, and, and maybe let, let's talk about artifice last because okay. that was something you created <laughs> new out of whole cloth. But talk to me about uh, you know arcane, divine, primal, and and verse. Um, so, yeah, our arcane, divine, and primal. Um, 
I, the big three um, just makes sense to have, especially in a, a world that is so infused with magic. And I think that there are some important distinctions in the actual system between the three Quite. that, that I like, and I didn't want to, to tinker with the inclusion of verse was honestly, because I like bards and I like bards being a part of the setting. And <laughs> I, I was like, well, Terranoth did it. So great. I'll bring that over. Um, I don't need runes, so I'll leave that out. Um, and it turns out just by virtue of throwing in verse, honestly, at the last second, uh, one of our players, Trevor took the bard talent at character creation and was like, yeah, I want to do that. And was like, awesome. I'm glad I included that then. Um, but I feel like this, this gives you your standard D and D style fantasy setting. If you go with arcane divine primal and verse that, that covers pretty much all your bases in terms of that style of, of storytelling and style of game. Now, one of the things that we, as we've just wrapped up a massive series on magic, and I don't want to get into magic. We'll have future segments <laughs> of, of Eberron Reforged on that. But when it comes to uh, your decision, you know, we, we talk about how how a no- knowledge is, is used to in in the in the additional effects tables for all the various spells. And mm-hmm. and just really quick, I, I'm assuming to a large degree, uh, you know, Arcana, Divine, Primal, and Verse. The, the spells, by and large, are going to function identically as we see them in in the, the, the core rulebook, the Expanded Player's Guide, and Terranoth, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. We, we had to figure out what from the EPG worked with verse, because that wasn't made clear. But other than that, we, yeah, we just pulled everything whole cloth. Okay. Well, I'm eager to talk about that in a future episode then. <laughs> um, but, but one of the things I do want to mention, because we're on the subject of skills, is you know, the additional f- effects for spells are driven by knowledge, okay? But but for you, did you pick a particular knowledge skill um, for all magic skills to be keyed off of for those, you know, uh, you know extra additional effect abilities? Yeah. Um, or or so, did you make it unique for each? Oh, I, I made it unique for each, uh, each magic skill um, because it, once again, that just made sense. Um, Arcana and Divine share lore as their knowledge skill that they ping off of. Uh, once again, that idea of combining the Arcana knowledge skill and uh, the religion skill. Um, and then for Primal, went with nature. Once again, making too much sense for my own good. Uh, verse, I decided to go with society, uh, which that one I kind of kicked around i didn't want another one pinged off of lore i already hated myself enough for doing two to ping off the same knowledge skill um so i thought what made the most sense for verse and you know i i think i may have been watching the witcher at the time and so seeing this bard through courts and knowing how to navigate uh well presume he presumed he knew how to navigate but on that show he most certainly did not (laughs) um (laughs) but i like the idea of a bard's magic skill pinging off of how well they know how to play to a crowd and how oh, well they know their fantastic. audience. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Yes. Uh, so I went with society for that. And then for artifice, I went with adventuring because that's, that's the artificer is they're the ones out in the wilds, uh, looking through ancient temples and trekking into long forgotten places to discover ancient magic. And it just made sense that their magic would ping off of their knowledge of, of the adventuring world around them. So talk to us then about artifice. First of all, what, what characteristic does it key off of? Is it, is it intellect the same way Arcana is? Yes, it is intellect. Okay. Um, yeah. Pings off of intellect and 
Artifice went through, I think, three or four different facelifts, different iterations, and not even iterations. That's that's being too generous. Different complete overhauls. Um, because I remember an early conversation with you when I had first decided to do this and I was diving deep into the artificer because I knew Philip was going to want to play one. And I was like, so I'm thinking about using the, uh, the Android rules, uh, to like do magic hacking and, and all this <laughs> stuff. And I remember you just going, you just, no, 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 stop, stop. It's a spellcaster. Stop. Um, you're making it way too hard on yourself. Uh, and so I took about five steps back. <laughs> and uh, when we initially started off the campaign, um, it was operated like just another magic skill where we had decided everything except for attack and heal were the two spells that it did not have access to. Because once again, for your listeners that don't uh, know Eberron that well, the notable thing about the artificer as a caster is they they cast their magic on items. They don't cast it on people. And so if, uh, to borrow D and D terms, if a artificer is casting bulls rush on the fighter in the party, they're not casting it on the fighter. They're casting it on their breastplate and their breastplate is what has this emboldened fortitude moving forward. And so removing attack and heal made sense because you can't affect organic things. And then when Keyforge came out after our first uh, set of episodes, we once again threw everything out the window and we're like, hey, this amber thing is really neat. Let's let's do that. Um, so so the artificer has been probably the hardest part of this conversion, trying to figure out what it looks like to be. I, I don't want to say faithful to the D&D version, because that's a mistake to to frame it in that way that way leads to ruin, but uh, just to try and live up to the, the reputation and the flavor of the artificer class and what they can do. I, I can only imagine. And it's I'm eager to, I, I'm eager to get into that in extreme detail. I know that's probably going to be one of our segments coming coming up. Yeah. But ooh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Eric, we, we've been, we've been John about this for a while now and, and it's been very intriguing to see your thought process and, and have you walk through this with us. And hopefully our, our listeners have, have learned a great deal, um, by, by, by seeing this in, in practice. I, I really, I guess I really want to, want to close by, by asking you to talk to us about your overarching goals during skill definition. What were the, you know, what things we haven't discussed, what were the general guidelines and principles that really, really guided you on this? Because I think, I think understanding that journey is going to help a lot of other uh, writers and, and, and GMs out there who are trying to do the same thing. Yeah. The, the number one thing is Eberron is such a beloved setting because you can do virtually any type of campaign in it. Uh, you could reasonably take a pre-written adventure set in Android, Terranoth, Twilight Empire, Star Wars, and easily adapt it to work in Eberron uh, just because of how the magic works and how pervasive it is and how it can just kind of whole cloth replace technology. But the trap there is to overload it. Um, with like I referenced magical computers in the form of arcane locks to bring in the hacking rules or using runes from Terranoth as dragon shards. Um, and so having that focus, especially if you are doing a conversion for a campaign for your table at home, what do you need now? What, what do you need in terms of skills 
uh, because once again, I was going to have to create a whole new skill for some kind of magical hacking. And I didn't have to do that because of your sage wisdom. Um, so the goal was to pr- provide a wonderfully unfocused setting, if that makes sense, by providing focus in the skill list uh, to bring everything together in such a way to where the skill list could be used in a high fantasy setting, one adventure, and then turn around to the next session into a gritty urban underworld uh, without missing a beat, without needing to go, oh, crap, we need this skill now. So having that that lack of focus really helped define the campaign and help define Eberron in Genesis. Mm. Very well said. Thank you. Well, Eric, thank you for joining us for this inaugural uh, s- segment of Eberron Reforged. I can't wait to have you on in future shows to to dive into some of the other nitty gritties. Because now that we understand the general skill choices you've made, we got a lot more to discuss. Yeah. And uh, you know, uh, uh, I haven't even asked you about this yet, but maybe maybe you could tease us what what you know because you're the, you're I mean, if listeners, er- Eric's the one driving this in terms of what what content to share with us. Where are we going to go next? Eric, what are we going to talk about next? Well, I think it only makes sense. Like we talked about defining your skills. Like you have to do that in order to start creating the other things. And I think the number one thing that skills play into are your careers. And I I think getting into listening to your players about what they want to play in the setting and using that alongside your skill list to create an interesting a career that they're going to be excited to use is probably a, a next good step to take. I can't wait to have that career discussion. Well, we will discuss it with you next time. So thank you again for joining us. Well, that was really, really informative and cool. I can't wait did to you, see what did, you, what... did you enjoy that? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and honestly, that's like, honestly, guys and listeners, we expect this segment to be about 30 minutes. We, we, we had an extra 10 minutes tacked onto it, so it's a bit longer than we would normally like for that segment. Hmm. Um, just because we really kind of had to kind of intro things for you all. Um, but you know, we, we kind of expected that this segment to be about 30 minutes, you know, on its recurring basis, but I cannot wait to get into careers next time we talk with Eric. Yeah. Um, your amount of work they've done is incredible, but I don't know. I, I, I found the process very insightful. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to, to be able to then use the information that they've got, uh, or the listeners, uh, as well as, uh, what Eric's got, uh, to then go and listen to, uh, Eberron Renewed. Uh, it sort of gives them a little bit of background to it as well. So, uh, so yeah, very, very helpful. It's a great segment. Well done. Ah, ah, I can't wait for more. Ah, I can't wait for more. You know what else <laughs> I can't wait for? What's that? Sliding my way under the hammer. <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that. <laughs> oh, see, I'm, I'm, I'm the master of unexpected uh, segues. Indeed you are. Yeah. Under the hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis RPG as it impacts both rules, content creation, and play. And we've got some great questions this week with a couple coming from our uh, Patreon supporters. Um, Now, of course, if you would like to join them and uh, get your questions to run to the top of the queue, visit patreon.com forward slash forge Genesis and become a tier two supporter today. All right, Chris, what's our first question? Well, it, uh, it it comes in from Dave Foster uh, via our Patreon Discord. I swear that's like the best Australian name ever. Well, apart from the Fosters thing, that stuff tastes terrible. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried it, but it ta- it's like it's like your Bud Light, but worse. 
it's it's worse. It's skunky. I don't I don't care. I don't care for it. You anyway, just need a commercial I, that they used to broadcast here. It was like Foster's Australian for beer. Oh my god! Really? Yeah. It's yeah. Foster's for bleh. Yeah, um, anyway. you know, there's a big crocodile Dundee looking dude like slam a giant can of Foster's down on a bar in the outback, and it'd be like Foster's. It's Australian for beer. Uh, no, no, it's definitely not. Anyway, I digress. Go on with Dave's question. <laughs> Dave says the following: Hi guys, um, love the show and have almost caught up. Um, I refer to the rules for strain recovery after an encounter. Core rulebook, page one one seven. Uh, which don't have anything to say about spending advantage or triumph on these rolls. Do they simply wash? Or may they also be used to heal strain as in combat and narrative play? Um, looking at the rules for interpreting the pool, um, which is in the core rule book, page 23, it's implied that advantage from any roll dice pool can be used to recover strain. This begs the question, do the strain recovery rules exist outside or in conjunction with the rules for typical dice rolls? What are your thoughts? Thanks. That's a great tin of worms to open up. Boy, howdy. Now, this, I did a little bit of research in relation to this as well, and, it, and it's pretty interesting. The, um, he's absolutely right. It can be um, that uh, advantages can be used to, uh, to recover strain um, because it, it's, another, it's, a, it's another dice roll. It's a, it's a dice pool rolled. The interesting thing is, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say on this, Chris. Oh, I have some strong opinions. <laughs> is that in the uh, in the Star Wars RPG and in all three uh, books, it talks about spending advantage to recover strain, and it also talks about threat being used to cause strain during um, narrative encounters. And one of the things that it mentions in the Star Wars books is there's a nice little bracket behind it uh, in parentheses that says can be used multiple times. That is not there in Genesis in either. No. So that begs the question, can you, in that sort of a scenario where you are doing strain recovery after an encounter, can you only do it once? So you can only so if you roll three advantages, you can only ever spend that one advantage to add on an additional an additional point of strain. No. <laughs> it's an interesting one. No, I, I say it with me. Say it louder for the back in the class. <laughs> Always err on the side of the player. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> here's the deal. Rules is written. Um only successes heal strain at that at that strain recovery roll you make at the end of the encounter. Mm. The rules also say that mm. when you make a roll, you can spend advantage to recover strain. Mm-hmm. Um, in my games from Star Wars, eight years past and into Genesis now, I allow both strain and ad- I about I allow both successes and advantage to be spent to recover strain. Mm. If um, I, I find it fitting, I find it rewarding, and it has never ever ever caused a problem in my game. Um, you roll three advantage. Guess what? You just recover three strains. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> as, as far as triumph goes, I mean, it's a check. How would you normally spend the triumph on a check? You know, you got to mm. think about that too. I've done some very creative things with triumph. Um, I've, I've allowed players to not necessarily heal, but ignore 
uh, for a period of time the effects of an ongoing critical injury if they're suffering one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a common way I've spent triumph on a strain recovery check. Mm-hmm. You know, but but there's all kinds of other interesting things you can do. You can maybe, uh, you know, upgrade the check that another character is about to make as you provide them with a witty banter or repartee <laughs> as they're about to recover their own strain, which could seriously help things out a lot. Right. Um, but he's got multiple facets to this question, right? The, mm. the the first one is spending advantage or triumph on those those after encounter strain recovery rules, and that's my mm-hmm. opinion on it. Mm. Um, he also wants to know: Can they be used to heal strain, as in combat and narrative play? I think we've covered that as well. Mm. You know, and the last part of it is: Do strain recovery rules exist outside of or in conjunction with the rules for typical dice rules? Well, I think honestly, although I haven't directly said it, I mean, it's my opinion that they work in conjunction. I mean. Mm. I don't know. It, it. It. I mean, people might disagree with me, but this is how I've been running it for years. Mm-hmm. It's never, ever caused a problem. Mm. Ever. Never, ever, 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 ever. The only hitch in the giddy up I got with this is there's a related question. You know, can you. Okay. How, how do I. Um, I can, okay. Holy. I can explain this best by example. Okay. Okay. Let's say you have a party mm-hmm. and they just got through a hairy combat encounter. Mm hmm. And they rolled to recover strain and they made their rolls and they didn't get as much strain recovery as they wanted. And they're sad. Hmm. And so five minutes of game time go by and they're walking through and they're not to the next encounter yet. And one of the players says, I want to make a perception roll to see if I see anything. Mm-hmm. And you go, okay. It's like, oh, I, I failed with four advantage. I'm going to use the four advantage to heal four strain. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This isn't directly related to to Dave's question, but this is the shenaniganry that can happen mm-hmm. if you start getting a little too lax in some players' minds, but they're worried about the wrong thing. Yep. The problem is that you allowed him to roll when it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's one that's, bot. <laughs> that's the problem. That's the real problem. Right. But I mean, honestly, that's the bigger concern. That's the only time I've repeatedly had to adjust player expectations to put it nicely mm-hmm. at my table over the mm-hmm. last seven years. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's an interesting quandary to all of this though. If you, I like it that there is consistency with rules. Okay. Um, that you don't have to be a, a rules lawyer and, you know, bash your players over the head with it all the time. That's, that's just not the point of the game. The game is to have fun, to tell a great story and move on. If you do, if you do it as uh, we're suggesting, where you can use advantages like that, what happens with initiative? Because initiative is another dice roll. It's a dice pool. It's based on your skill. It's just that there's no difficulty. So you're rolling yeah. that, and it talks about advantages being used to. And I'll explain because this is what um, was suggested uh, in one of my campaigns, and we ran it that way, and it was great that there is specific, when it comes to uh, triumphs, that in that it specifically says you can use a triumph to take an additional maneuver, okay? Yes. But it doesn't say that about uh, advantages, okay? But the normal rules say that if you roll two advantages, you can get an additional maneuver. What I have seen done in my games, and it's worked perfectly well, and both parties uh, have done it, I've not worried about doing it for NPCs because it, it's more paperwork that I don't want to have to deal with. Um, but I've seen players that have 
um, seem that they're not really going to be part of the the top of the pool, and so they they say that they've rolled, let's say that they've rolled one advantage um, and three successes, but just one advantage, and they know that it's not really going to affect the outcome too much. So what they will do is they will go, can I spend that advantage to gain a point of strain, or can I um, use that advantage to somehow affect the story? so that there just happens to be cover over there that we could get to within a manoeuvre. That sort of stuff. Um, I guess it depends on the scenario, but we used to do it all the time and uh, there was never a problem with it. Really? Uh, and and that sort of applies. But the thing is, is that if you use that advantage, that's it. It's gone. You can't use that then to uh, – so if you had three advantages and you decided to use two of them, you're down to one advantage. Um, so uh, on the on the initiative roll, you're on the initiative roll, because you've already pre-spent that advantage. Yeah, uh, I. It's difficult. Look, look, it really what's, is difficult. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, I guess. If it works in your games, do it. I would yep. never do that. Right. But 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 that's because that's because advantages and how they're spent for initiative rolls are very clearly defined. Mm. That like this is exactly how you do it. Furthermore, for me, it's a bit of a narrative break, and I'll, mm. I'll, I'll explain. And this is something else you got to consider, guys. When you spend advantage on a check to recover strain, mm-hmm. all right, what you are doing is when you're making a check, it's in a stressful situation, mm-hmm. okay, and you have found some type of inner strength to recover some of that exhaustion, as mm-hmm. a part of the stressful situation, you know, you may not have succeeded, but you 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 did well enough to where you've bolstered yourself, basically, or yeah. you did so well and that you've been proud of yourself and you bolstered yourself and you recover some energy, you recover some strain. That's how I've always done it. Mm-hmm. With initiative, from a narrative standpoint, I have a really hard time applying that justification. Mm-hmm. So the, I don't I don't know I don't know if it works in your game, holla, but <laughs> I. See, and this is this is the thing about house rules. You use what works for your players and your yeah. game, and you do it. Do what you got to do. Yeah, I, I mean, think who is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it it basically really is a case of it works until it doesn't, because um, <laughs> no doubt somebody it's going to come up somewhere. And I mean, there's even a talent that is in Keyforge that allows you to spend a triumph in an initiative role in a certain way. Which basically means that how they've written it in the rules is that when it comes to initiative, the advantage is just purely there for the tiebreaker. The number of successes works out exactly where you are. And then the triumph is used predominantly, unless you have this new talent, to take a maneuver. And as you said before, it's very, very specific. And I guess when it comes to you spending advantages um, in uh, the Australian recovery, it's not very specific. So, uh, you know, maybe that's the destruction of that argument, but I don't know. Mm. Interesting discussion, though. Interesting, Interesting discussion. I hope, Dave, I hope our, our discussion has helped answer your question somewhat. Mm, indeed. Now, our next question comes from Kevin Pfeiffer. Uh, Pfeiffer. Who, well, sorry, what is it? Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer. Oh, Pfeiffer. Is that how it's pronounced? Oh, you actually you. met him at Gamer Nation Con. Yes, I know. Week. I know Kevin. <laughs> I actually played with Kevin. Sorry, Kevin. You're going to hate me now. 
Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so he asked via Facebook. So I was listening to my backlog of episodes of The Forge, and you guys mentioned the interaction between signature spell and implements again, and it got me thinking, which is always dangerous. I know what you mean. Uh, while I agree that implements can't add more free additional effects to the signature spell, what I started wondering is if they can still reduce the difficulty of a signature spell with matching additional effects. I realised I haven't heard this discussion yet. My initial reaction is that they absolutely can, but I wanted your take on it. As an example, a PC has signature spell attack with range, deadly and destructive, and uses a magic staff. Natural difficulty is formidable, and the talent reduces the difficulty once to daunting, and the staff reduces the difficulty once to hard, maybe. The staff isn't granting a new ingredient to the recipe. Range is still limited to medium, but I don't see a reason to prevent it from applying its effects to the existing range effect. It seems thematic for a caster to choose an implement that complements their signature spell. I know this is a frequent question, and you guys have thought it through much more thoroughly than I have. Thanks. <laughs> Damn. It's an interesting one. <laughs> What's yeah, your thoughts? Um, um, so uh, let me start by saying it's rules as written at this point. Hmm. I have talked to so many GMs at this point mm. that have banned the signature spell talent from their game. Mm. And you can go into the interwebs and find all kinds of great discussions <laughs> about how signature spell is just broken and overpowered. Mm. And some not so great. <laughs> Most of them are not so great. <laughs> yeah, this is the internet after all. This is the internet. And I I have a lot I have a hard time I mean and, and the reason is because you start bringing in stuff well what about this well what about that well what about this well what about that hmm. in a perfect world on its own it works fine but when you start bringing in stuff like this it starts to get really crazy hmm. and the ability to have a I'm sorry relatively inexpensive and easy to find implement like a magic staff hmm. and a very low level talent allow you to turn a five purple spell into three purples is dang. That's, <laughs> that's, um, that's, that's a bit hard for me to swallow. Kev. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I, I always say, and I just said it and screamed it before air on the side of the players always. Hmm. So what I would, if, if you're going to, I mean, I would say try it with the caveat to the player that, if this if if I find this to be imbalancing, it's ending. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Huli, what do you think, man? Well, basically, what he's saying there is that it's okay to give a first level character a fireball um, in D anD D if you want to put it into those sort of terms. So, if a first level character is coming up to a, uh, a horde of um, of kobolds, um, you let them have a fireball. Don't complain when they're all dead. And that's destroyed your encounter for the night. Um, the same sort of thing applies here is that obviously you want your characters to progress with their power in the same sort of way that you would any other type of, uh, of role-playing game, that as they get more experience, they get better at what they do. Giving them everything right from the get-go is a really bad idea for a number of reasons. 
the first of which is that it's going to break your game. Second of which I think is that you want your players, especially if they're new to the game, you want them to be able to absorb the rules as they're going. And the best way to do that is that they start low, but they don't have a lot of stuff that they have to overcomplicate things with. And then as the story progresses, they get better and better and better at it. So they can, they've got the rules that they have to learn first. They don't want to have to know all about the, the 10 different signature spells or things that they've got. You want to make it as simple as possible. So, um, and I know that I've experienced that myself with, uh, with some other games, uh, especially D&D, where you get invited to a group and they say, oh, we're all 17th level. Great, thanks. I have no idea what I'm doing. That was the first game that I ever played 5th edition in was a 17th level campaign, and I'm just going, I've got no idea. So, uh, and that just overwhelms people and puts people off. Um, so, when it comes to these sorts of things, just, you know, steady, steady, I think. So, um, but as far as this, I agree with you 100%. I think the signature spell, as written, is totally fine. There's nothing that gets added to it. It is something that that character has... It's really good, I think, if you are sort of that lower level to have a spell that you're really good at, and it's really good for healers and stuff like that. Um, but when it comes to, um, you know, starting to bring in these easy-to-find things, it's just going to break the break your game. And as you say, this is the reason why people have gone, signature spell, no. Okay, so, so wh- why do professional athletes, and I'll, I'll use... I'll use the most white bread example I can think of, tennis players. Right. Why, why do professional tennis players insist on having the same racket every single time they play? Same mm-hmm. brand, same weight, same grip, same everything. Why? Why do they insist on that? Um, I honestly don't know. I, I don't follow tennis. Um, well, no. Why would any athlete insist on having the precise piece of equipment they need for whatever, be a baseball player, a bat, yep. okay? For for a uh, uh, for for a footballer, you know the exact same pair of shoes that fit the exact same way with the precise cleats. It has to be the same every time they play. This is a common thing. Why yep. do athletes need that? It enhances their own ability. It works with them um, to uh, to make them a better athlete. Simple. Oh, no, no, oh, no. no. Okay, wrong answer. No, it's the wrong <laughs> answer. Holy. Well, neither you or I are very athletic, so it's it's very simple, and it provides consistency. Uh Uh-huh, right. Okay? Mm -hmm. It comes down to most things for professional athletes, muscle memory, okay? Mm -hmm. When I'm making a tennis serve, when I'm trying to hit a line drive or a home Mm -hmm. run, Mm -hmm. when I am making that perfect corner kick, it is... I am so practiced at that activity that it is muscle memory. And Mm. that's how I can do it with ease, that perfect thing. And if I screw with the variable in any way, I'm off my game. If my racket's too heavy, if my bat is the wrong size, if my shoes are too tight or the cleat pattern is not correct, Mm. I've just screwed it up. Signature spell to me is the mage's equivalent of muscle memory. Mm. This is one thing that you know how to do kabam instantly that that is why you're able to do it at that reduced difficulty hmm. when you add anything to it mm-hmm. including an implement in my opinion it's the same thing as using a 
different bat or a different cleat or a different, you know, shoe or a different racket or whatever it is. Mm. It's the same thing. It's going to jack with the balance. That's, that's how I, from a narrative perspective, am not a fan of it. That's a very good point. I had not considered that at all. Hmm. Very mm. good point. Very mm. good point. Hmm. But it also backs up what we said that don't do it. Try it and then watch it break your game and then don't do it. <laughs> Look, something could be said because obviously any sort of uh, weapon does have hard points. So if you want to go down that path, perhaps that there is some sort of uh, some sort of attachment, whether it be a gemstone or something like that, that allows that to happen. But there's going to be a massive quest involved to do that. But there's also another quest which is more important to the story. So let the players have a have a choice as to which direction they want to do. Help the mage improve themselves so that they can do this funky thing, or go down the uh, the path and if they decide to go down the path of uh of getting that funky thing for uh, for the major staff have some sort of consequence occur because they didn't go down and do the right thing i think i think a piece of equipment is a great uh suggestion a newly minted freshly created tier four or tier five talent could be another option mm. maybe you know what we have improved signature spell right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sounds like a supreme signature spell to me. <laughs> Allows you to use an implement yep. with your signature spell. Okay. Mm. Um, that's another option. And, you know, honestly, because then again, the worry and the fear and the game balance, I, I don't care anymore when you're talking about a character that has access to tier five talents. Yep. At that yep. point, at that point, they've, they've, they've buttered their bread at that point. They've, mm. they've, they've earned their stripes. Yep. So, yep. It, it, you know, they're, they're going to make that five purple check mm. anyway, most mm. likely. So really all the influence doing is making sure they'll get an extra success or two. Yep. Good questions. Very good questions. I like them. But Huli, I'm afraid that does unfortunately bring us to the end of yet another show. And we had said at the start of the show, we were going to keep this to two hours. And I know we've exceeded that. We're probably pushing two 30 at this point. I I would imagine, (laughs) but with the announcement section we had to have and the products we had to go through. (laughs) Holy moly. Not that I'm objecting at all to uh, to people giving uh, brand new products. It's no. uh, it is, it, it's no. great stuff that that's appearing on there. You know, forgetting some of my you know little complaints, the uh, the the stuff that's getting out there is absolutely fantastic. So um, so well done to to all of the authors. And if you're just listening to this show, and I know that there are a few of you out there who really want to put stuff out there. Um, but haven't done so yet, and yes, I'm included, um, you know, bite the bullet and actually just put something out there. Um, if you need some advice, we are here. Um, you, uh, That's one of our Patreon levels. We can help you out with that. Um, but, hey, look, even if you just throw us some ideas that you want, if you see us on Facebook or something like that, um, we're more than always happy to, to throw in our 50 cents worth. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, something in there. Absolutely. But anyway, it does bring it to the end of the show, unfortunately, as you said, Chris. Uh, but we'll, we will be back uh, with a new episode in short order in which we'll return to die casting with a look at the alchemy skill, which is really exciting. What you can do with it, what you shouldn't do with it, and what feverishly insanity you can boil over. 
Come on. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but I'm also looking forward, uh, Gamer Nation, uh, to a, a forthcoming show dedicated to a deep dive of Secrets of the Crucible, mm. uh, which uh, uh, will, of course, have some very special guests. Mm. Um, you know, and, and honestly, now that the book is out, it's in everyone's grubby hands, whether it's digitally or physically. Um, we've got that on the docket as well, guys. We're, and, and while we are lining up scheduling uh, for our guests, mm. we want your questions about the book starting now. So if yep. you have any questions or topics related to Secrets of the Crucible mm-hmm. or any other questions about Genesis or gaming in general, for that matter, mm-hmm. we want you to contact us. And Huli, how should they do that? Well, they can email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or they can post it up via one of the many social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit, as you like to say. I can't roll bars like you can. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, by searching at Forge Genesis. We've also been having some great conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel and, of course, truly dedicated conversations with our Patreons on our very own podcast Discord server. And we'd love to hear from you all. Don't forget you can also join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And uh, don't forget to give us a like or a follow as well on any of our social media sites. You can also drop us a review on those sites for your favorite podcatcher, including iTunes and even Spotify. Um, You can also visit our website at ForgeGenesis.com. Well, that is a wrap for us, and that's a short show. Yay, I can't wait to edit this. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you will join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game. I'm Jim Hurley. May our triumphs be many, and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good. Thanks again for joining us, and remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.d20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, the social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains a property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Thank you.